was really at the, the cutting edge of organizational abilities. This was also adopted by the CIA and MI6 in the West primarily, and they merged together those two organizations, the latter two, to supposedly combat the communist threat. And it's interesting, as I say, when you go even further back to find out the big players, even within what was called the OSS and eventually the CIA, they belonged to the international groups that wanted world government, like the Council on Foreign Relations and the Royal Institute of International Affairs tonight. I'm going to give some excerpts from a book which goes into this, and it's uh, very interesting. Back after the following messages. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt. We're cutting to the Matrix, and before I go into this, I'll explain the people that I am brought to you by you, the listeners, and you can buy what's offered on my website, cuttingthroughmatrix.com, or you can donate, or do both, and that's what keeps me going. I don't ask any of the stations I'm on, or any of the shows I've been on for money. It's up to you to keep it going, if you like what you're hearing. I try to not just to go into the, the daily news so much, because I think that's evident for us all to see that the big things are happening as we move into the next transition phase, a phase that was planned long ago, where the whole world is to be brought into a new economy uh, and a new regimented way of living from birth to death, watched to the grave by cameras, all your information collected, electronic information, and stored in data banks, the banks, I think, in Britain, that they'll keep all information, all telephone calls, everything up to 10 years or more. And that will happen elsewhere if it's not already been done. Most of this thing, this stuff has already been done anyway. And getting back to this book, and I'll mention the name of it uh, near the end of the show. Otherwise, I'll be running off to look it up on the Internet. And you won't hear what I have to say. So I'm giving you a shortcut to the book. So just listen. And it's quite interesting. The OSS was the precursor of the CIA, and it was set up during World War II as a combination of Britain's Secret Service and the United States' new Secret Service. They worked out of Chatham House, which is the head office, that's the main quarters of the Royal Institute for International Affairs another private organization, so we're told. Personally, I don't think so. The evidence points to the fact that the Royal Institute of International Affairs and the CFR are basically a secret service unto themselves working for the establishment. And this book actually goes into some of this. And if you can actually read it and see all the names of the people who belong to it, it'll give credence to what I'm talking about. It says here, Governed by legislation which prohibited little and countenance virtually anything, OSSers or Ossers, sometimes they call themselves in the Wizard of Oz, found themselves roving wartime Europe like latter-day proconsuls. The first OSS man to reach Bucharest after the German withdrawal in autumn 1944 became a regular guest at meetings of the Romanian 
cabinet and boasted to his colleagues, before they vote on anything, they ask me what I think. They pass all my laws unanimously. I never thought running a country was so easy. But running a country was precisely what most OSSers were brought up to do. Recruiting from the heart of America's corporate, political, academic, and cultural establishment, Donovan had assembled an elite corps which hailed from America's most powerful institutions and families. Members of the Mellon family held espionage posts in Madrid, London, Geneva, Paris. Paul Mellon worked for the Special Operations Executive in London. His sister, Ailsa, once known as the world's richest woman, was married to his commanding officer, Chief of OSS London, David Bruce, son of a U.S. senator and a millionaire in his own right. J.P. Morgan's sons were both in the OSS. The families Vanderbilt, DuPont, Archibald, or Archibald Standard Oil, Ryan. He was also in equitable life insurance. Wheel Macy's department store, Whitney, were all represented in the ranks of Donovan's secret army. This is far from having risked their future status, their period in the OSS enhanced their reputations and offered another network to combine with the old school tie that had brought them together in the first place. So there was also personal ambitions involved too. This and their initiation into illegality and unorthodoxy was to provide a rich resource for the CIA because the OSS transformed into the CIA. In fact, the OSS was disbanded by President Truman, who said he didn't want another Gestapo running the United States of America. To continue here, it says, it was this historic elite, the Ivy Leaguers, who cast their influence over America's boardrooms academic institutions, major newspapers and media, law firms and governments, who now stepped forward to fill the ranks of the fledgling agency. Many of them hailed from a concentration in Washington of a hundred or so wealthy families known as the Cave Dwellers, who stood for the preservation of the Episcopalian and Presbyterian values that had guided their ancestors. Schooled in the principles of robust intellect, athletic prowess, politesse, and solid Christian ethics, they took their example from men like the Reverend Endicott Peabody, whose Groton school run along the lines of Eton, Harrow, and Winchester was the alma mater of so many national leaders. Trained in the Christian virtues and the duties of privilege, they emerged believing in democracy but wary of unchecked egalitarianism. Reversing Willie Brandt's celebrated declaration, we are the elected of the people, not the elect, this was the elect who had not been elected. And then on page 96 of this particular book, and this goes into culture because this is what it was all about. Most of the Cold War had nothing to do with espionage as we think of it. It was to do with a battle for people's minds. Both the Soviets, or the Soviet elite, and the elite of the U.S. and Britain and other countries in Europe were more afraid of the minds of the public being stolen by the winners. And therefore, all propaganda that came out on all sides was aimed to direct the mindset of the general public who hadn't a clue. But that's what it was all about. Says here, William Colby, a future CIA director, reached the same conclusion. The communists made no secret of their belief in what they called 
the organizational weapon. I started off the show talking about the fact that people down below, the masses, who are probably the most enlightened slaves that's ever existed with more information, there's no organization amongst them. It says the communists meant no secret of their belief in what they called the organizational weapon, organize the party as the key command troop, but then organize all the other fronts, the women's groups, the cultural groups, the trade unions, the farmer groups, the cooperatives, a whole panoply of organizations so that you can include as many of the people in the country as possible within those groups and thereby under basically communist leadership and even discipline. Well, the U.S. and its think tanks, and it's mentions in here, the CFR too, being one of them, realized that they would have to outsmart the communists. At least that's what they tell us. Remember, the whole project, if you go further back in history, was to get the dialectic going between two sides. But the East and the West, it was very clear cut. And out of the end of it, according to the foundations, in the good book to read is foundations, uh, their power and influence from the Rees Commission that was done in the 1950s with Senator Dodd, who had to investigate how the big foundations and why the big foundations seemed to be sponsoring what seemed to be the most fervent communist groups. Because the CIA, it seems, did create some of the most left-wing groups of all. Therefore, those who are inclined to go left-wing would join their groups instead. That's quite the plan. And they came up with the idea of promoting what the, the Soviet system hated and called the Americans promoting what they called decadence through the arts. That was a visual arts, drama, music, painting, altering the culture completely, and also through the novels that would get churned out like crazy, and which they did, it definitely did affect everyone who grew up in the so-called Cold War. Remember in the Cold War too, the people weren't taking it serious enough in a lot of the countries. It was Bernays who came up with the idea, Bernays that I mentioned last week, who came up with the idea of training the children to get under their tables in the classroom to get it home to them that this was real, to make them afraid. It says here, the directive concluded that practical and ideological considerations both impel us to the conclusion that we have no choice but to demonstrate the superiority of the idea of freedom by its constructive application. Truth also needs propaganda, the philosopher Carl Jaspers had recently declared, here was the mandate which authorized America's cold warriors to take constructive measures to ensure that the truth triumphed over deceit. The budgetary provisions set out by NSC-68 revealed the importance now given to this task. In the next two years, the $34 million spent on psychological warfare in 1950 was to be quadrupled. That's when they really took over the entire culture industry of the West and they set up branches in every country throughout Europe and Scandinavia and ran them they ran the cultures it says here in the contest for men's minds truth can be peculiarly the American weapon Secretary of State Edward Barrett announced 
It cannot be an isolated weapon because the propaganda of truth is powerful only when linked with concrete actions and policies. A highly skillful and substantial campaign of truth is an indispensable as an air force. He meant propaganda, though. And truth, like the century, was to belong to, the, to America. That's what they called it, the new American century. If the seat needed to be used to promote the truth, then so be it. That's what Arthur Kessler called fighting against a total lie in the name of a half-truth. The purpose of the IOD, said Braden, was to unite intellectuals against what was being offered in the Soviet Union. And I'll go into this because it's very interesting. It's quite a deep book and there's lots of facts in it back in a few minutes. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and we're cutting through the Matrix and we're discussing the techniques used during the Cold War and we've got to keep in mind that if the CIA was running the cultural industry right up until the Berlin Wall fell down they would never give it up afterwards in other words they're still running it the author of this particular book did a lot of research and and she tried to get information from the CIA under the Freedom of Information Act. She was told that even the few questions she'd asked and the access to some documents would cost up to $30,000. So she had to go into private archives from people who'd been in the CIA and get access to this kind of data. As I say, remember, this book pertains also to not only to where we are today, how we got here, but where they're going, because this is the most powerful tool ever. You are, in a sense, your culture. Whatever culture is given to you, you are. It's, you're in it. You dress like it, you sing the songs of it. You talk about the novels that are churned out. You talk about all the, the different things that captivate your mind, like everyone else around you. It's all churned out by the culture industry. Because it's a battle, as I say, for the mind. You control people through the information, through the data you give to them. Remember what Brzezinski said, the public will shortly be unable to think for themselves. He said that in the 1970s. That's what's happened. They feed us the data. We parrot it to each other. We all think we're normal because we're all talking about the same things all the time. And they have specific areas and different age groups to target. They have one for every age group. It says here, the purpose of the IOD, said Braden, was to unite intellectuals against what was being offered in the Soviet Union. The idea that the world would succumb to a kind of fascist or Stalinist concept of art and literature and music was a horrifying prospect. We wanted to unite all the people who were artists, who were writers, who were musicians, and all the people who followed those people to demonstrate that the West and the United States was devoted to freedom of expression and to intellectual achievement without any rigid barriers as to what you must write and what you must say and what you must do and what you must paint, which was what was going on in the Soviet Union. I think we did it damn well, said Braden. And at that time, 
when the world was being turned upside down, all this weird art would come out. And people would think it was all the left-wingers that were doing it. It wasn't. It was the CIA's teams that were doing this. They hired novelists, and it says in the book too, that many of whom would never have made it on their own. And artists that had been starving because no one would buy their arts. They made them famous. And they promoted nihilism. Nihilism. Tie that in with what Bertrand Russell said, who was also part of this group as well. He said, to control people, you must create a form of apathy. And that's what nihilistic art is designed to do. It says here they use certain agencies too. It was to provide independent support for the American foreign policy objectives which sought to promote a united Europe. That was their policy, a united Europe. That was also part of the deal with the Lend-Lease program at the end of World War II. Eisenhower said that most of this money would have to go towards the working and setup of a united Europe. Here we are today. Folk lived through that whole period until not too long ago they admitted they now had a European Parliament. Yet for years they denied they were working towards that. It was just to do with trade, they said. NATO and the European movements, the latter being substantially endowed by the CIA. So they paid for all that. The U.S. taxpayer paid for all that and didn't know which included a reunified Germany. That's happened now, too. It was to act as an emissary for the achievements of American culture and to work to undermine the negative stereotypes prevalent in Europe, especially France, about America's perceived cultural barrenness. It was to respond to negative criticism of other aspects of American democracy, including its civil rights records. On page 119... It goes into the degeneracy of it. It says the art and sculpture exhibition, this is an exhibition they put on in Europe. It says, was curated by James Johnson Sweeney, art critic and former director of New York's Museum of Modern Art, which was contracted to organize the show. Works by Matisse, Durain, Cézanne, Surat, Chagall, Kandinsky, and others, masters of early 20th century modernism were called culled from American collections and shipped to Europe on 18th of April aboard the properly named SS Liberty. Sweeney's press release made no bones about the propaganda value of the show. As the works were created in many lands under free conditions, they would speak for themselves of the desirability for contemporary artists of living and working in an atmosphere of freedom. On display will be masterpieces that could not have been created, nor whose exhibition would be allowed by such totalitarian regimes as Nazi Germany or present-day Soviet Russia and her satellites, as has been evidenced by those governments labelled as uh, labelling as degenerate or bourgeois of many of the paintings and sculptures included. It's not long ago I read an article about the, the corpses that now have hanging as we become more and more dehumanised hanging in museums and art galleries back in a moment after this break. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network because you can handle the truth.
Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and we're studying the Matrix, going through a book called The Cultural Cold War, which is a good book for the time. I'm sure that's all we'll be allowed to know because this woman has done her research and I'm sure too that she probably was told just how far she could go and bring out this kind of information. Remember, we were always dished out information about 40 or 30 years after the events. That's pretty well standard. But as I say, keep in mind that an organization which was running the cultural industry for the whole of Europe and America would not give it up at the end of the Cold War or where the Berlin Wall went down. It was too much involved because they still had the masses to deal with. And they would not allow the masses to go off in different directions when they already had them on the same path. And that's what had happened by them. As I say, they're putting on these massive shows, these art shows across the world, all funded by the taxpayers. Art that you probably would never have bought yourself. Art that many of the painters, as I say, if they tried to sell it, would have died in death by, and they'd been destitute because no one wanted it. And the big foundations were involved because they were promoting this art as being the end thing. All the big magazines at that period were promoting this nihilistic art and they were saying that Mrs. Rockefeller was buying it. Lots of it. It's the end thing. And that's how people are. They want to copy. If this is the end, I want it too. It was all nihilism, basically. But they did the same with the music and various other techniques as well. And churned out novels after novels by third-rate writers made them popular. Going on to 132, page 132, it says, The fundraising arm of the Free Europe Committee was a crusade for freedom for which a young actor named Ronald Reagan was a leading spokesman and publicist. The crusade for freedom was used to launder money to support a crusade for freedom uh, to support a program run by Bill Casey, the future CIA director, called the International Refugee Committee in New York, which allegedly coordinated the ex exfiltration of Nazis from Germany into the states where they were expected to assist the government in its struggle against communism. There's a lot of this stuff just coming out in Britain now about Britain bringing in lots of these ex-Nazis too. It was kept very quiet there. Dulles kept a, Dulles, this is the, the Dulles family. Dulles kept a firm grip on the committee by placing CIA officers in key positions. If a problem arose which needed to be resolved out of channels, Dull would simply call a meeting with the committee's principals in a New York club or hotel. Top secret documents record a series of such meetings convened by Dulles at the Knickerbocker Club and the Drake Hotel, in this case in a bedroom booked for the occasion. How many Cold War campaigns were waged from hotel bedrooms? Other meetings were held in Alan Dulles or Frank Wisner's offices at CIA headquarters. The USA was a big operation, very big, said the narrator of Humboldt's gift. Commenting on the dedication of America's elite as they manned this privateer, Henry Kissinger wrote, it, it is to the lasting credit of that generation of Americans that they assumed these responsibilities with energy, imagination, and skill by helping Europe rebuild, encouraging European unity, 
shaping the institutions of economic cooperation and extending the protection of our alliances, they saved the possibility of freedom. This is the same man now that's still trotting around the globe, pushing the same thing for this new order of things. He's all over the TVs in different countries talking about it. He's the man behind, one of the men behind this incoming president. This burst of creativity is one of the glorious moments of American history. Henry Breck, a CIA case officer and alumnus of Groton School, expressed it another way. Of course, if you're in a real war, you must fight hard, and the upper classes fight the hardest. They have the most to lose. When they were not huddled together in clubs or hotel rooms, Breck's upper classes applied themselves with equal commitment to the business of entertaining. Lively, self-confident, voluble, Weisner and his colleagues were driven to enjoy a good party, just as they were driven to save the world from communism. Weisner loved to dance. To a, he loved to do a dance called the Crab Communism or Crab Walk. Angleton, a legendary consumer of martinis, and sometimes, if anything, he'd get a hold of. You see, dance free form to Elvis Presley tunes of parties, weaving enthusiastically and often by himself. And then he goes on to tell you that all of these guys, because they came from the elite families, were also making a killing off this Cold War privately because all their companies and corporations were involved in the Cold War. It was a, it was a great party time. It was a great big, big joke for them, in fact, to be honest with you. That's on page 133. And how, how did they organize? What did they use to organize? They used the very institutions that were already set up for world organization. On page 134, it says, the use of philanthropic uh, foundations was the most convenient way to pass large sums of money to agency projects without alerting the recipients to their source. By the, by, by the mid-1950s, the CIA's intrusion into the foundations field was massive, Although figures are not available for this period, the General Counsel of 1952 Congress Committee appointed to investigate U.S. foundations as the Rees Commission concluded that an unparalleled amount of powers concentrated increasingly in the hands of an interlocking and self-perpetuating group. Unlike the power of corporate management, it is unchecked by stockholders. Unlike the power of government, it is unchecked by the people. Unlike the power of the churches, it is unchecked by any firmly established canons of value. In 1976, a select committee appointed to investigate U.S. intelligence activities reported on the CIA's penetration of the foundation field by the the mid-1960s. Now, I've been talking about these foundations for ages and how it's all part. They're all interwoven in this massive system this bringing in the new world order under the guise of charity, charitable foundations. And they keep adding more and more to them all the time, like the Bill Gates Foundation. It's all part of intelligence networks. They create the powerful men. They bring them up and make them powerful. Many of the big technological companies are CIA-owned. You couldn't let technology get out of hands or out of your hands into the public's hands unless you pass it as okay. You couldn't have free enterprise in technology when they said themselves that technology technology, and those who can create more of it will win the Cold War and the future. So whatever, whatever given at the bottom is authorized to be given to us. 
Sincere. In 1976, a select committee appointed to investigate the U.S. intelligence activities reported the CIA's penetration of the foundation field by the mid-60s. During 63 to 66, of the 700 grants, over $10,000 given by 164 foundations, at least 108 involved partial or complete CIA funding. More importantly... CIA funding was involved in nearly half the grants made by these 164 foundations in the field of international activities during the same period. Bonafide foundations such as Ford, Rockefeller and Carnegie were considered the best and most plausible kind of funding cover. A CIA study of 1966 argued that this technique was particularly effective for democratically run membership organizations which need to assure their own unwitting members and collaborators as well as their hostile critics that they have genuine respectable private sources of income. Certainly allowed the CIA to fund a seemingly limitless range of covert actions programs affecting youth groups, labor unions, universities, publishing houses, and other private institutions from the early 1950s. There was a cover branch at CIA whose job it was to help provide cover, like the foundations we use for operations, Braden explained. I paid no attention to the details. The finance department would handle it and talk to the cover officer. It was just a mechanism which she used. The Farfield Foundation was one of them. I don't know the names of all of them, I can't remember, but it was a crisscross of money. There was never any danger of the CIA running out of money. The crisscross of money filtered its way through a raft of host foundations. See how it works? Remember that 1,000 points of light that Bush Sr. talked about when he he gave his New World Order speech? He was talking about the foundations and the NGOs they control, the non-governmental organizations. At the beginning of the talk, I talked about how the Soviets had one thing, and that was the perfection, the ability of organization. They could organize, and the CIA were doing exactly the same thing, using those same techniques. This goes on to say here, the crisscross of money filled its way through a raft of host foundations, some acting as fronts, some as conduits, known to have wittingly facilitated CIA funding passes were over 170 foundations, including the, the Hoblet Cell Foundation, which is a pass-through for the Farfield, the Litor Foundation, a donor to the Farfield, the Miami District Fund, another donor to the Farfield, the Price Fund, which was a CIA dummy, the Rab Charitable Foundation, which received CIA money from the Phony Price Fund, then passed it to the Farfield. The Vernon Fund, like the Farfield, a CIA dummy front with a rubber stamp board of directors, and the Whitney Trust. On their board sat the cream of America's social, financial, and political establishment. Not for nothing did these foundations announce themselves as private. Later the joke was that, that, that if any American philanthropic or cultural organization carried the words free or private in its literature, it must be a CIA front. This was the consortium at work calling in favors across the old school tie network, the OSS network, the boardrooms of America. The board of the Farfield Foundation alone provides a fascinating map of these intricate linkages. 
Junkie Fleishman. Its president was a contract consultant for Wisner's OPC, and thereafter a winning CIA, a witting CIA cover for the Congress for Cultural Freedom. That's what they called this whole organization, a Congress for Cultural Freedom, created and funded by the CIA. But they also brought on board all the big marketers as well, the same ones who were already controlling the culture of America, mainly for profit at that time. They had to bring them on board and guide them. This is his cousin, Jay Holmes, was president of the Holmes Foundation, incorporated in 1953 in New York. Holmes began making a small contribution to the Congress for Cultural Freedom in 1957. From 62, the Holmes Foundation acted formally as a pass-through for CIA money to the Congress. The Fleishman Foundation, of which Junkie was president, was also listed as a donor to the Farfield Foundation. Also on the board of the Fleishman Foundation was Charles Fleishman, Junkie's nephew, who was brought onto the Farfield as a director in the early 1960s. This is all the old school tie. All of it. Another Farfield trustee was Cass Canfield, one of the most distinguished of American publishers. So that all, all the people on board the publishing companies too. He was a director of Grosset and Dunlap Bantam Books and director and chairman of the editorial board of Harper Brothers. Canfield was the American publisher of The God That Failed. He enjoyed prolific links to the world of intelligence, both as a former psychological warfare officer. A psychological warfare officer owns big publishing companies. Think about it. As a close personal friend of Alan Dulles, whose memoirs, The Craft of Intelligence, he published in 1963. Canfield had also been an activist and fundraiser for the United World Federalists, United World Federalists in the late 1940s. You think it was the communists who were trying to take over the world? As then president was Cord Meyer, later Tom Braden's deputy, who revealed that one technique that we used was to encourage those who were members who had influential positions in professional organizations, trade associations, or labor unions to lobby for passage at their annual conventions of resolutions favorable to a cause. I've always mentioned how you've got to be careful of groups and associations that you join. And even when you start your own group up or association, it will be infiltrated. It will be. And eventually someone will rise to the top that you'll all like that will lead you off into the same direction that we're supposed to go in. And that's where we're supposed to go is the United Nations. We would debate everything there and put it on the table. In 1954, Canfield headed up a Democratic Committee on the Arts. He was later one of the Democratic Committee uh, uh, founding members of ANTA, American National Theatre Academy reactivated in 45 as the equivalent of the Foreign Affairs Branch of American Theatre alongside Jock Whitney, another partner of the CIA's Quiet Channels. Canfield was a friend of Frank Platt, also a Farfield director and a CIA agent. In the late 60s, Platt helped Michael Joselson. He's quite the character. He goes right through his whole personality in this book. Get a job with Canfield at Harper's. Cantor was also a trustee of the France America Society, alongside C.D. Jackson, Grayson Kirk, president of Columbia University, David Rockefeller, and William Burden, who was its president. 
William Armistead Moal Burden, as well as being president of the France America Society, was a director of the Farfield. A great-great-grandson of Commodore Vanderbilt, Burden was key presence in the American establishment. He was a member and director of the Council on Foreign Relations. Remember, the Council on Foreign Relations, as I say, is a branch of the Royal Institute of International Affairs. And its goal, its mandate, was to set up world government. This is a private, and here it's called a private think tank made up of America's corporate and social elites which acted as a kind of shadow foreign policy-making unit. Other members included Alan Dulles, John McCloy, and David Rockefeller. During the war, he worked for Nelson Rockefeller's intelligence outfit and sat as chairman of an advisory committee of the Museum of Modern Art in New York. In 1956, he became president of the museum. In that year, he also sat on the State Department's Books Advisory, a Books Abroad Advisory Committee. So they're all, they said they weren't censoring books. In a sense, it's true. They were, they were deluging the market with lots of other kind of books that was to bring down the whole culture of people across the planet. It says here, he's also sat in the State Department's Books Abroad Advisory Committee. Former Assistant Secretary of State for Air, he was a financier, special interest in aviation financing. Back in a moment after this break. I'm Alan Watts, and we're cutting through the matrix. We're actually rushing through a book here. And this book is called The CIA and the World of Arts and Letters, The Cultural Cold Wars by Francis Stoner, S-T-O-N-O-R, Saunders, S-A-U-N-D-E-R-S, Francis Stoner, Saunders. And I'll try to get in this last little page here. Page 144, the Rockefeller Foundation, no less than the Ford, was an integral component of America's Cold War machinery. Incorporated in 1913, its principal donor was the legendary John D. Rockefeller III, had assets exceeding $500 million, not including an additional $150 million in the Rockefeller Brothers Fund, Inc., a major think tank which was incorporated in New York in 1940. In 57, the fund brought together the most influential minds of the period under a special studies project whose task was to attempt a definition of American foreign policy. Subpanel 2 was designated to the study of international security objectives and strategy. Remember, too, they're also talking, when they say international objectives and security objectives, they're talking about their own wealth taking over the resources of the planet. That should be rather self-evident says here, and its members included Henry and Claire Booth Lucy, Charles uh, Lawrence Rockefeller, Townsend Hoops, representing John Jock Whitney's company, Nelson Rockefeller, Henry Kissinger, Frank Lindsay, and William Bundy of the CIA. The convergence between the Rockefeller billions and the U.S. government exceeded even that of the, of the Ford Foundation. John Foster Dulles and later Dean Russ both went from the presidency of the Rockefeller Foundation to become secretaries of state. So they're all in the CIA and in these foundations at the same time. They still are, by the way, the same, the same, their descendants. 
Other Cold War heavies such as John J. McCloy and Robert E. Lovett featured prominently as Rockefeller trustees. Nelson Rockefeller's central position on this foundation guaranteed a close relationship with U.S. intelligence circles. He'd been in charge of all intelligence in Latin America during the Second World War. Later his associate in Brazil, Colonel J.C. King, became CIA chief of clandestine activities in the Western Hemisphere. When Nelson Rockefeller was appointed by Eisenhower to the National Security Council in 54, his job was to approve various covert operations. If he needed any extra information on CIA activities, he would simply ask his old friend Alan Dulles for a direct briefing. It actually says in here, too, when they needed to, to get anyone on board anywhere, they just look up the membership list of the Council on Foreign Relations and bring them right into it. They were already passed as being safe. Page 145, as important as Nelson Rockefeller's was, so was his brother David. He controlled the donations committee of the Chase Manhattan Bank Foundation, was vice president, then president of the bank itself, a trustee of the Council on Foreign Relations, chairman of the executive committee for International House, and a close personal friend of Alan Dulles and Tom Braden. I often briefed David semi-officially and with Alan's permission on what we were doing, recalled Braden, who was of the same mind as us, and very approving of everything we were doing. In the same sense as I did, that the way to win the Cold War was our way. Sometimes David would give me money to do things which weren't in our budget. So here's Rockefellers literally paying the agents to do operations which were black ops outside their budget. The Cultural Cold War by Francis Stoner Saunders. Excellent book to show you how it's done. And by the way, it's still being done. And that's the end of the show for tonight. So I'm Alan Watts. And so from Hamish, myself, and to your Canada, it's good night. And may your God or your gods go with you.